From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. In Canberra in the 1970s and 80s, David Eastman was thought of as a serial pest. That was until he was convicted of murdering the Assistant Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police. The problem was, he didn't do it. Sam Vincent on a case that sent the wrong man to prison for 19 years. This is part one of a two-part episode. So Sam, you've been reporting on the retrial of David Eastman for close to a year now. Let's start with him as a person. What kind of person is he? So he's now 74 years old and for the majority of his life he's been well known in the camera community. He's from a privileged upbringing. His dad was a decorated ambassador who headed diplomatic missions in places like Singapore and Sri Lanka. So Eastman was what Canberrans refer to as a diplobrat. He grew up in this kind of very served-upon environment between Canberra and embassies around the world. And then uh, Eastman goes to school in Canberra. He follows in the footsteps of Gough Whitlam and is ducks of Canberra grammar. He studies economics at university and gets a job at the Department of Treasury. And it appears that he is heading for a successful career in the public service. Sam Vincent is a writer and author. His coverage of the Eastman trial for the monthly won a Walkley Award this year. But he's also quite an eccentric man and he suffers from a paranoid personality disorder which is diagnosed in the 1970s and by all accounts he's quite difficult to work with during this time. And in 1977 he is passed over for promotion in Treasury and he quits in protest. And he immediately, successfully, has his resignation reclassified as caused by stress and he's put on an invalidity pension. And then soon after that, he seeks to have that pension overturned and he seeks to have his mental health approved so he can return to the Treasury. And this is really when Eastman's life starts to descend into chaos For the next 10 years, he embarks on this crusade to get his job back and he comes to believe that there's a conspiracy to keep him out of the public service. And so here's a person who quits his job and then spends years and years trying to get back into the public service. What does that attempt amount to? In meetings with bureaucrats about having his mental health approved, he loses his temper easily. In one example, he pours orange juice over a bureaucrat. But also outside of this process, he's very abusive. He's thrown out of various libraries at ANU for insisting on borrowing arcane legislation. And when that's refused, he, he loses his temper. He, he goes to ANU public lectures and argues with speakers. And in one example, he punches a speaker to the ground. So it's full on and it reaches a stage where basically in 70s and 80s Canberra, everyone who is anyone has heard from David Eastman, whether you're a senior public servant, a journalist, a politician, he calls in the middle of the night and abuses you or knocks on your door. I heard stories of him ringing random public servants at 4.58pm on weekdays to check if they were at their desk Um, and if they weren't, he would then start yelling and leaving abusive messages about what a waste of taxpayer money this was. He's really all-pervasive, a public nuisance. 
But there's a serious side to this shit-stirring. He threatened to kill federal Liberal Senator Margaret Reid and then ACT Labor Attorney General Terry Connolly, and he even threatened to kill the Assistant Commissioner of the AFP, Colin Winchester. And that's when people started to take him a little more seriously because Colin Winchester was gunned down outside his home in January 1989. Colin Winchester is the highest-ranking police officer assassinated in Australia. The AFP Assistant Police Commissioner was shot twice in the head outside his Canberra home. For a senior police officer to be assassinated in the haven of his own home, in the driveway, off duty, is a new element in Australian uh, criminal annals. And uh, for that reason, every resource has to be mustered to uh, deal with it quickly. And so what was Eastman's connection to Colin Winchester? How does he get to the point where he threatens to kill him? So this whole decade, 77 to the late 80s, Eastman's trying to get back into the public service. And in 1988, he finally receives good news. His mental health has been approved to return to the public service, but there's a potential snag. The previous December, Eastman had been involved in a scuffle with a neighbour at the public flats where they both lived and Eastman was charged with assault. And this was potentially an impediment to him returning to the public service. And so Eastman is basically asking Winchester to have the assault charge overturned. By all reports, it's a pretty heated meeting. Winchester refuses. He says at this stage it's out of his hands. And the meeting ends with Colin Winchester proffering his hand and Eastman refuses to shake it. And then there are allegations of threats on Winchester's life. So right from January 1989 after the murder, David Eastman is considered a prime suspect. So Eastman becomes a prime suspect in the murder of Colin Winchester. Winchester's basically the ACT's top cop until that point. What happens next? Well, Eastman refuses to account for his whereabouts. He's he's very vague. That murder window between about 8 and 10pm on January 10, 1989, he's never accounted for it. So this looks pretty sus for the police. So the first thing that's held is a coronial inquest, which takes 125 days over three years, but it returns an open finding. Despite circumstantial evidence against David Eastman, the threats, the lack of an alibi, the coroner says that the fatal flaw in the hypothesis of Eastman as a murderer is that there's no evidence linking him to the murder weapon. The position of the shells uh, indicates that uh, the offender was outside the car. Uh, The first shot was fired uh, from behind the assistant commissioner uh, at close range. The murder weapon was never found, but some spent cartridge cases from the murder weapon were found at the scene. In 1992, a witness comes forward and says that he saw David Eastman leaving the house where the murder weapon was sold by a private seller shortly before the murder. And on that evidence, David Eastman is arrested. The eccentric and polarising character was arrested three years after the brutal killing. This is an outrageous frame-up. I'm completely innocent. We'll be right back. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? 
Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're in 1992 and the police have arrested David Eastman for what they believe is the murder of AFP Assistant Commissioner Colin Winchester. Tell me about that police investigation. So Eastman is really harassed by the police. Police attention was quickly on David Eastman. I initially thought it was a drug raid, so they just swooped in. They know that he has a paranoid personality disorder and they've sought psychological advice to crack him. At one stage they have 10 or 12 people working full-time, surveilling him, walking around, following him on foot, on bicycle. And with the police came others. David, it's Naomi Beasley from ABC Television. We're interested in talking to you now if you'd like to come and talk to us. And Eastman actually starts to fight back. He throws rocks at them. He's psychologically at at a breaking point, but he never uh, admits to the murder. So in 995, the trial begins, and it's a chaotic trial. It takes seven months, and over those seven months, Eastman sacks his legal counsel 12 times, so he's often representing himself. He's yelling and abusing witnesses. He's swearing at the judge. The prosecution's case against him is largely circumstantial. A policeman says that he saw Eastman looking into police cars in the city police station where Colin Winchester worked the day of the murder. There are the threats. One man says that he saw Eastman leaving the gun seller's house the weekend that the gun was sold, the murder weapon. But the key plank of evidence is the forensic evidence. The prosecution's chief forensic witness claims to have matched gunpowder residue found at the crime scene with gunpowder residue found in Eastman's boot. And crucially, Eastman at this stage is self-representing and he doesn't cross-examine this witness and it's really considered as irrefutable evidence. And in fact, when the jury finds Eastman guilty at sentencing, Justice Carruthers concludes that this was one of the most skilled, sophisticated and determined forensic investigations in Australia's history. His late wife heard the crack of the rifle that night. Colin can rest in peace, knowing that the creaking wheels of justice will incarcerate his assassin. And when Eastman is led away, he's yelling as he has been throughout much of the trial and he yells that this is a miscarriage of justice. He says this is the biggest miscarriage of justice in Australia since Lindy Chamberlain. And then what happens? So Eastman continues to maintain his innocence and he appeals again and again and these appeals are rejected. But finally in 2010, a man comes forward and he says that 
in the late 1980s, he borrowed his friend David Eastman's car and went rabbit shooting and he stored his rifle in Eastman's car boot. Hmm. So suddenly there's this possible alternative explanation for how the gunpowder residue came to be in the boot. And it prompts the calling of a judicial inquiry and they pretty quickly determine that this guy, the rabbit shooter, is untrustworthy. But they've already opened the judicial inquiry and this is when they find that Robert Barnes, the prosecution's forensic expert, was extremely unprofessional in the way he went about things. He was averse to peer review. He only worked alone. It emerged in the judicial inquiry that he was really bias in the way he went about things. And forensic evidence at the time was a pretty novel part of investigations and he was found to have overplayed basically the supposed match. And by match you mean the gunpowder that was in Eastman's car as well as the gunpowder that was found at the crime scene in 1989? Exactly. So Robert Barnes had argued that they'd come from the same weapon, the murder weapon. But even from the early days of the investigation, the night of the investigation, there were problems with the way the forensic evidence was collected. 81 people trampled over the crime scene that night. They may well have destroyed crucial evidence. And in the judicial inquiry, acting Justice Brian Martin did wonder whether a skilled barrister could have revealed these problems, but the fact is Eastman was representing himself, so that didn't happen. And the judicial inquiry ends in 2014 with Justice Martin concluding that a miscarriage of justice had occurred because the conviction, murder conviction of David Eastman, had come about largely because of forensic evidence which was unreliable. Hmm. He concluded that he thought Eastman was, quote, probably guilty, but a nagging doubt remains. So because of the time that had elapsed, he quashed Eastman's conviction and he recommended that Eastman be pardoned. But instead, the full court of the ACT Supreme Court decided to hold a retrial, which started in June of 2018. So even though Eastman was released from prison at the end of the judicial inquiry after 19 years, he still had to face this retrial. And that's what you followed. What happened as a result of that retrial? Yeah, so it was basically the exact same trial of 1995 with two huge differences. One was that the forensic element was simply removed. The other major difference was that Eastman was extremely calm. He didn't carry on once. He had a very skilled barrister who represented him the whole time. And the same witnesses were called, 127 witnesses were called, but a lot of time had now elapsed and Eastman's barrister took great delight in pointing out that uh, these witnesses were now deafer, vaguer, older. Their memories weren't quite what they were back in 1995 when they first gave evidence. And this time, after deliberating for six days, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Hiding his face for the last time, David Eastman always claimed he was innocent and today a 12-member jury agreed. After a second trial, a jury today found him 
not guilty, guilty of shooting Assistant Police Commissioner Colin Winchester. As the verdict was read out, an audible gasp could be heard within the courtroom. I'll never forget that moment. For five months, there weren't many people in the courtroom. It was just me and a few court reporters. Sometimes I was the only person in the public gallery. But the morning of the verdict, it was completely packed. I think the whole ACT DPP was sitting in the public gallery. And Eastman, when he stood to hear the verdict, he was bright red. And when the verdict of not guilty came, he mouthed, thank you, to the jury and then he thanked the judge and it was all over. He was suddenly a free man. Tomorrow, the second part in the story of David Eastman's wrongful conviction. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts, and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Elsewhere in the news, fires continue to burn across New South Wales and Queensland. In all, more than 140 fires are still active. There is a mega fire at Gospers Mountain on Sydney's northwestern edge. It is now too large to manage and is expected to burn until the end of January when rain is forecast. A heatwave is expected this week and temperatures could reach 43 degrees in Sydney. And in the United States, the House Judiciary Committee has released a 55-page report outlining the legal case for President Donald Trump's impeachment. The committee's chairman, Gerald Nadler, says Trump abused his power, betrayed America's national security and corrupted its elections, all for personal gain. Nadler says the Constitution is clear that the only remedy for such misconduct is impeachment. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you Tuesday. <laughs>